My name is Rob Katz. I'm the CEO of Val Resorts, and I want to welcome you to Epic by Nature. Around the world, across all of our resorts, we have employees who are experiencing their own epic journeys. Employees who are the heroes of their own stories, who constantly challenge themselves to give more, to do more, to be more. We developed this podcast so that we can share their journeys and the journeys of our guests, our mountains, and our communities, all of which are truly epic by nature. We have to be ambitious and we have to be accountable to one another as a team. We're together in this as a community, as a mountain, as a resort network, and it just makes me feel part of something bigger. I want to win, but more than that, way more than that. I want my team to win. We have always been very innovative and I think that is why we are leaders. I found that there was a much greater value in we than in me. By our very existence, we have an impact on the environment. We consume energy, we expand terrain, we produce waste. Acknowledging this tension, trying to find solutions, has been a journey the company has been on for the last 20 years. It was the summer of 1998. Vail Mountain was embarking on their most ambitious project to date, the Blue Sky Basin expansion, while also gearing up to host their second World Alpine Championships in February. Like any mountain project, not everyone was supportive. Environmentalists were concerned the project would destroy lynx habitat. The lynx, kind of like a bobcat, had not been seen in the area for over 20 years. Chris Jarneau, our current Mountain Division Executive Vice President, was the Director of Marketing at Vail at the time and remembers this period well. The approval process with the Forest Service was, you know, incredibly challenging. And, and I think, you know, to this day, there hasn't been a project that has been as exhaustively analyzed and as challenging uh, an approval process and the opposition to it and the questions about it and, and all those sorts of things were, were much more intense than anything else that I've ever seen. Eventually, the U.S. Forest Service went ahead and approved the project. However, the opposition continued to grow. Protesters began arriving from out of state. I mean, it was national news. We had people from around the country who were in town on the mountain, chaining themselves to equipment at night, camping out in trees. It, it was incredible. And it was, you know, it was a really challenging time for everybody in town. For those of us at the company, it, there were a lot of questions about whether, you know, given the, the sort of passion of this opposition, whether, you know, was this the right thing that we were doing? It was emotionally charged but no one could have predicted the devastation to follow. A group called The Family, associated with the Earth Liberation Front, planned to launch what was at the time the largest eco-terrorist attack the country had ever known. Leader of the pack, Bill Rogers, made his way 11,000 feet up, crept into the back bowl's ski lifts, setting timing devices intended to ignite a five-gallon plastic bucket filled with a mix of diesel and gas. When the timers went off, the entire mountain would be firebombed. Shortly after 3 a.m. on Monday, October 19th, the devices were triggered. The destructive blaze spread across a mile and a half, 
destroying three buildings and four chairlifts and causing $12 million in damage. My wife called me and said, I just heard that Two Elk is on fire and PHQ is on fire. And I, I remember it crystal clear. My knees buckled and I sat down and thankfully there was a bench right next to me because I wound up sitting on this bench because I envisioned a forest fire that stretched from Two Elk to patrol headquarters. And we hung up and she called back about 15 minutes later and said, no, it's not a forest fire, it's just the structures. And instantly I knew at that point it was arson. It had to be that there would be no other explanation for why these structures miles apart on the top of the mountain would have burned. The community and the resort came together as one to rebuild. Vail opened for the winter season. The World Alpine Championships went ahead as planned at Vail and Beaver Creek in February. And the Blue Sky Basin project completed and is now considered some of the most legendary terrain in the ski industry. Do I think the project was worth it? Knowing what I know now, it was absolutely worth it. It was worth having to rebuild Two Elk and PHQ and Chair 5. It was worth all the terror that we went through around that. I mean, anybody who skis Blue Sky Basin on a powder day would tell you it was worth it. Today's podcast is not the story of one leader or one team or one resort. It's the story of the evolution of our company's sustainability journey over the last 20 years. How did we move from a target of one of the worst environmental terrorist attacks in the United States to an environmental company with leading edge sustainability policies that have shaped and impacted our employee culture, our guest experience, our community involvement, and most importantly, our mountains. Far away from Vail, in Ontario, Canada, a young woman named Alana Williams was attending university. I double majored in business and then environment resource studies. Um, at the time, no one taught that together, so I actually had to attend two universities down the street from each other. So I majored in business at the business school, and then I went down the street to the environmental school. So one school was business suits and cell phones which were bricks at that time. And the other school was dreadlocks and patchouli. <laughs> Alana visited Whistler in 1993 and noticed they didn't have a recycling program and an idea was sparked. She negotiated an exchange. For free lift tickets, she would develop a waste plan for Whistler as part of her university thesis. And so I would come out on my winter break and on you know spring break, and um, it's very hard because when there was really good snow, I would sometimes be doing homework. And then in 1997, when Whistler and Blackcomb merged, they created my job, which was as a basically as a waste person to start. And I pitched the job by saying, I will reduce your garbage enough, your costs to pay me. And that's how I started. Alana is currently the Senior Sustainability Manager at Whistler Blackcomb and has been a driving force in sustainability at the resort. She began with a focus on waste. So I would have garbage samples collected all day and then they would be brought down to different areas and I would have rubber gloves and plastic bins that were labeled and I would literally sort all the garbage into different categories and I would weigh it with the idea being that I would, you know, quantify the waste stream and tell you exactly how much I could divert. Using the data generated, she set the direction and goals for a recycling program, quickly reducing costs associated with waste by 40%. It wasn't all smooth sailing though. There was a lot of testing and learning along the way. 
So I collected hundreds of ski boots and I put them into our boneyard um, and I was going to get them all taken apart and then take them down to a place in Vancouver that was going to change them into wood, like engineered wood. And so I got all my friends to volunteer and we went into the carpentry shop and the carpenters were letting us use like different things like bolt cutters and to try and pull these boots apart. And I literally, like I had a pile of, a, I think a couple hundred. And I think in four hours we did six boots. Um, and so <laughs> that was an epic fail. It was, it just took so long to take them apart. Eventually, Alana shifted focus to an environmental fund that was financed by staff paycheck donations to fund local projects before moving on to energy projects. In 2008, the team at Whistler Blackcomb wrote their sustainability policy, an aspirational goal to eliminate their operating footprint. It was not yet clear how or when that goal would ever be achieved, but a commitment to zero was born. Meanwhile, back in Broomfield, Vail Resorts was wrestling with our own sustainability policies. In August 2006, we announced that our company would offset the carbon emitted from all of our electricity use by purchasing wind power credits. The announcement made Vail Resorts the second largest corporate buyer of wind credits in the nation, second only to Whole Foods. Beth Gans, who joined the company in 2007 to develop the government relations strategy at the time, recalls. Wind credits at that point really were the new thing on the block. And it was really, it was an important piece of the history of the evolution of renewable energy. The market of wind credits was just starting. So we really helped that market be successful um, and come onto the scene. It was hugely innovative at the time. Addressing the impact of our electricity usage was the first step. But we also knew we could take steps to consume less energy. In 2008, we set an energy reduction goal of 10%. Not quite as ambitious as the one we have today, but at the time, it was a big first step. We wanted to look at our operations differently. We wanted to see where um, we could produce really the same quality experience and product, but just be doing it more efficiently. I think to the goals themselves, everybody adapted really well, because it sounds awesome. Of course we should reduce our energy load, and of course we should conserve, and it's great for the planet, it's good for the business, people understood that, awesome. And then all of a sudden, some, you, we have to do our jobs a little differently. And there were challenges with that. Taking these strides forward was not without criticism. While some were hailing our initiative, others suggested that merely buying credits was not enough. Terms like pocketbook environmentalism were thrown around. At the time, it was the only way for us to make a substantive investment in green energy. But was it enough? One of my favorite memories in my 11 years at Vail Resorts is from during the time of when we switched from wind credits and invested in the Hayman restoration effort. Over a period of 20 days in the summer of 2002, the worst fire in Colorado's history burned a total of nearly 140,000 acres in the Pike National Forest. The Hayman Fire destroyed everything in its path, including 600 structures, forests, wildlife habitats for threatened species, recreation sites, trails, and roads, 
and impacted the water supply for more than 75% of Colorado residents. In 2009, the site had still not been restored. And we were wondering if there was a better way for us to help the environment than purchasing wind credits. So we had a lot of conversations internally and knew that um, the National Forest Foundation was looking for investment and partnership um, in the Hayman restoration effort. And we were wondering whether it really made sense um, to make that switch. So we asked a couple of uh, external environmental leaders that I knew personally that th and we thought that we could really trust to come in and have a conversation with us about making the switch. And it was an amazing meeting because they were so impressed that we were having this thoughtful dialogue internally and really wondering sort of where, if we were going to invest a significant amount of resources, what was going to have the greatest impact. And it was in that meeting um, that somebody said, you know, renewable energy is critically important. Not sure what role credits are actually playing right now. But the truth is, if there isn't human intervention in the Hayman restoration area, it literally won't rejuvenate itself for 500 years. And the watersheds are critical, the forest is critical. It needs attention and it needs help. And really we think your resources are best spent there. So we decided to contribute to a $4 million three-year project to restore habitat harmed in the Hayman fire. Many of our resorts are located in Forest Service lands. The National Forest Foundation is a private nonprofit that works across the United States to promote the connection to public lands and take on restoration projects which conserve and protect that land for future generations. Over the years, we have partnered with the National Forest Foundation on a myriad of projects, but by far the most impactful has been the Ski Conservation Program. Since 2006, guests have contributed donations on all Vail Resort season passes, online tickets, and lodging properties, raising more than $5.2 million. It was started actually at Snowbird, and then Vail Resort said, okay, we're going to do it to all of online passes, all of online sales, and we're gonna make it opt out so that people are more likely to give the dollar. And it just blossomed overnight, the entire program. We are still the largest entity as part of that program, and it's invested millions of dollars in conservation projects in our resort communities. Seemingly, we were on the right path. We were raising money and investing in forest conservation projects. We were part of the first forays into mainstreaming renewable energy. We achieved our 10% energy reduction target and set a new target for another 10% reduction. We were implementing waste reduction and recycling programs and working to protect the Colorado water supply. We felt good about how we were moving forward. Then in 2016, Powder Magazine published an article claiming we were actively donating to federal officials who were blocking climate change legislation. The criticism was hard to digest. Brendan McGuire, our senior director of government relations, remembers it clearly. It was a really tough article for me to read that really tried to take both Vail Resorts and other ski areas to task for political contributions that had been made to 
uh, politicians who, in the view of the author, are anti-climate, do not believe in climate change, are climate deniers, um, which are all very politically charged terms to, to throw around. How do you affect change? Running your business the right way is one, but advocating for broader change is another. To do that, you need to engage with a broad array of stakeholders, including local and national politicians. Part of that effort is political outreach. And like it or not, providing financial support to elected officials is another part of the process. To improve our voice, Vail Resorts formed an Employee Political Action Committee, utilizing voluntary contributions from employees to make political donations. But to which politicians? We only contribute to incumbents. We do not contribute to open seats or challengers. Political giving can either be to influence the outcome of an election or to cement or work on a relationship with an individual. We're very much a relationship-based pack. And that's where our focus is. Incumbents are where you can create a relationship. And then we try to make sure that the folks that we're contributing have some relationship to our business. Either they represent a state or a district in which we operate, or they sit on a committee or have a specific interest or influence on issues that are really important to the business. The company decided that we were going to give to both Democrats and Republicans with the goal of creating relationships on both sides of the aisle. Why? Because that's how you drive real change. Whether we are pushing for immigration reform, protecting international visas, lobbying for our summer activities bill, asking for more funding for the Forest Service, or better protections for the environment and renewable energy, it's hard to affect change if you're only talking to the people who already agree with you. And so when I go into these offices and, and meet with them on the official side, or when we see folks at a fundraiser on the political side, we're not bashful about talking about what is our position on the Paris climate withdrawal? What is our position and our desire to see federal climate change legislation? How do we feel about renewable energy? We don't back away from any of those issues. We acknowledge it uh, with, with any individual. And then we also acknowledge the things where we do have alignment and the, the places that we're able to work together on. So it begs the question, can we be an environmental company if we support a bipartisan approach to political action? Do we engage with folks who agree with us on some things, but not on others? Folks who may not want to tax carbon, but are willing to fund forest restoration? These are very real questions facing everyone in the environmental movement, including our company, with no easy answers. In August of 2016, news was breaking at headquarters in Broomfield that Vail Resorts had acquired Whistler Blackhome. Beth Gans recalls the moment. So we acquired Whistler Blackhome. I remember, I mean, everybody was just, ah, it's awesome, Whistler Blackhome, it's incredible. But our environmental team went crazy. I mean, Whistler Blackhome was the mecca of environmental sustainability efforts in the ski industry. And there was no one on the Vail Resorts team that didn't recognize the opportunity for learning, for working with the best. Back at Whistler Blackhome, Alana Williams was told to come in early for a meeting 
where the news was also shared with the leadership team there. Alana recalls, None of us saw that coming. And we're a big management team, but we're really like a family. And so it just took us a while to process it. And so I remember driving back up the hill because my office is partway up the hill and trying to remember what all Vale was doing with environment. Uh, so I reached out, I, I tracked down the director at the time on LinkedIn because I had no idea what his email address was. And I sent him a note like, what's going on? What are you guys doing? What's happening? I was so excited because I thought, wow, people are actually going to care about snowmaking and energy efficiency and compressors. But then the idea of the amount of impact that could happen with that many employees and that many resorts is just, the potential is so huge. The acquisition of Whistler Blackham and learning what they had achieved had shifted our mindset. Beth understood the potential. As we were developing the commitment to zero and the conversations that went into that, we knew we wanted to set a bold goal. It was time, right, for the company to put our stake in the sand and say, we're going to reach this. We just didn't know what it was. And so we started to have a lot of conversations about what that could be. And we, we started with medium, let's just say, a goal that was certainly way more than we'd ever done before, but something we also felt like we really felt comfortable that we could achieve, both on energy and on waste. And it was in a meeting uh, when we brought this forward and brought it to Rob for, for his feedback, where the conversation started to talk about the PPAs and renewable energy and, and what that investment could mean. And all of a sudden he was challenging us to say, well, okay, 25% or 35% sounds good, but can we get to 100? And it was that moment where all of a sudden that was our charge. And, you know, could we figure out how to, he said 100, but what we really meant was zero. Could we get to zero? And that's how it began. So we had taken Whistler Black Home's zero commitment and added a time frame and announced it in July of 2017. I remember Rob Katz was going to announce that at Inside Edge. And Inside Edge is broadcast, you know, across all the resorts. And I remember sitting in the front row thinking, is he really going to say it? Is he really going to say this? And is he going to say 2030? Because to me, 2030 is like, it's a fairly short time to change so much. And then, you know, he announced that they were going to go ahead with commitment to zero. And I just remember being just in awe that that was happening. Um, just part of, partially because, you know, to have some influence on that was really cool. And the fact that there was that accelerated timeline, that definitely was a game changer. So it was kind of like what we were doing, but then, you know, speeding it up, which was pretty amazing. Yeah. So all of a sudden we had everything we'd ever wished for, right? We had this most unbelievable, the biggest commitment we could make. And now all we had to do was get it done. Turns out getting it done is the hard part. And that's where we need experts in the field to help us figure this out. Experts like Kate Wilson, our director of sustainability. I have been drawn to sustainability, I think, my whole life. I went to Colby and got an environmental degree. You know, as part of that, I studied abroad in Kenya. And I looked around and realized sort of the influence that we were having as a Western culture um, on these places and how that was changing tribal life, how that was changing um, the environment and waste and all of that. And I sort of looked around and was like, I want to figure out how do we solve this problem? How do we, how do we make smarter choices in terms of development? 
So from that point on, my personal vision was to make the biggest impact on climate change that I personally could. And um, that's been guiding me ever since. So I'm responsible for commitment to zero, to have zero net operating footprint by 2030, which includes zero net emissions, uh, zero waste to landfill, and zero operating impact on forests and habitat. I run a team of folks that are in the field, uh, as well as there's an energy manager here in Broomfield, and we work to achieve those goals. In October of 2018, we announced that we would be entering into a virtual power purchase agreement, or a VPPA, which enables us to 100% reduce the emissions associated with this year's estimated electricity for all of our operations in North America. We have invested in wind power credits before, but this is very different. Now, we have made a 12-year commitment to purchase energy from a new wind power plant that will be built in Nebraska. We are helping to fund it come online. Having us agree to purchase the power for 12 years enables projects like this to get the financing they need from banks to be able to come online. Reducing electricity emissions by 100% is a huge leap forward in our company's commitment to zero. But we also have a commitment to reduce our energy consumption by an additional 15%. So we are looking at all sorts of different new technologies. We know by 2030 there'll be technology we don't even have today. Um, so, you know, as part of that, we have invested in a lot of low energy snow guns. We've also looked at, you know, lighting retrofits. I think we just replaced something like seven to 8,000 light bulbs in Park City over the summer. So we're doing a lot of, um, you know, evaluating. Another component of our commitment to zero is waste. We are working to get 50% of our waste diverted out of landfill by the end of 2020 and eliminating it altogether by 2030. It's hard to get the waste off the mountain, you know, whether it's by gondola or cat in the middle of the night. How do you move the waste around? How do you sort it? Does the guest sort it? Do we sort it? So, you know, the actual implementation on the ground is a little bit more bumpy, right? We do have to figure out the unique aspect of each mountain and how does it work um, to get this to happen. But I think that's why we have my, ground, my team on the ground helping. We took a big step in the right direction this year by making the commitment to eliminate all single-use, guest-facing, conventional plastic products, such as straws, cups, beverage lids, and plates and cutlery from our restaurants, and replace them with reusable or compostable products. And as we're doing that, we want to make sure that they are matching the waste streams of our resorts. So this is actually a really challenging piece of this. So for example, in some resorts, we can't compost yet. The communities don't have a solution to that. So we have to work with them hand in hand to, to figure that out by 2030. And at the same time, we want to move forward. So we're making sure that we don't have styrofoam or we don't have virgin plastics. And if recycling is what we can do there, then we want to make sure we have a recycled product it should be pretty clear that this is no easy job. It involves changing the behaviors of every employee, every member of our community, every guest, every supplier, and every governmental body that we interact with. But for Kate, that's all in a day's work. I can't believe that I get to do this job. I can't think of anything else I would rather do than be able to work on something that is at the core of my values of trying to reverse climate change and trying to help the world evolve 
to do things better and smarter and protect where we live. Unlike Kate, I came to my own passion for the environment through my wife. When I met her, she was dumpster diving, literally sifting through trash coming out of New York City office buildings and restaurants. After working at the Environmental Defense Fund, my wife started a business putting in commercial recycling programs. She knew it was good for the environment, but she also knew she could reduce a company's trash bill if they got someone else to pick up the recyclables. It was good for the planet and good for business. That needs to be our approach as well. It's not a choice. We don't choose the planet or our business. We need to choose both. We need to show people how to do business in a profitable, sustainable way, in the right way. Success on our journey to zero depends on all of us, all of our guests and all of our communities becoming engaged. Our planet and our future depend on this. So many of you may be wondering, whatever happened to the lynx population in Colorado? That was the concern with Blue Sky Basin. As part of the project, we actually helped fund the reintroduction of lynx into Southern Colorado. That was in 1999, and biologists believe we now have a self-sustaining population in Colorado. There are big things we can do and small steps we can individually take. But what is indisputable is that it's incumbent on all of us to consider what more we can do for the environment, because that's in our nature. I want to thank Chris, Beth, Alana, Brendan, and Kate, not just for joining us on this episode of Epic by Nature, but for the work that they do. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. And once again, we'd love to hear from you and get your feedback. You can send us emails at podcast at Thanks for listening.